This is RDQI. This episode of RDQI is brought to you by Freedom Insurance. Anything can happen anytime. Make sure you're covered like a blanket with big fluffy pillows next to it. And a dog, maybe a cat. No, just a dog. Hey Dave, why is pizza so good? I mean, it's everything you'd ever want, right? Personally, 100%. I'm A, like we're both Midwest kids, right? So I'm all about starches. So give me a nice crust and anything and I'll probably be happy. But then you throw in the tomato and the cheese and whatever else you're going to do with that. And man, it's just like, it kind of like, it hits all the flavor centers in the palate. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it really does. I mean, even like, and, and that's the thing about pizza. Even the worst pizza is still, as much as we may hate to admit it, is still delicious. Because, you know, like, you know, okay, you and I know the, the you know, getting a thin crust Italian style pizza out of a, you know, thousand degree oven and that super crisp burnt crust. And mm, yeah, um, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I mean, as much as I hate to admit it, Domino's disgusting microwave pizza is still really good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I Not mean, nearly to the same extent, you know. And like, I won't tell anybody. You know, I like I eat it you know, under the desk, and hopefully nobody notices. But it still <laughs> tastes. It still tastes really good. Right. I mean, so we're both, generally speaking, from Chicago. I've spent a lot of our time in Chicago. It's a big pizza city. Um, mm-hmm. It's funny leaving Chicago and people being like, "Oh, you must like your pizza a certain way." And it's like, dude, I don't even want to talk religion with you yet, you know, because it, <laughs> it, it takes on a religious quality in Chicago. I'm sure it's the same oh, thing yeah. with New York and you know everywhere else. But I hear you because, like, I okay, my favorite is always going to be Pequod's Pizza in Chicago. I grew up on it. There's nothing that could possibly beat it because I grew up with it, right? Like memory will always make it taste better. Oh yeah. But you're totally right. I'd still eat Domino's if it was offered to me. And it's and a, I, it's such a like it's such a simple, plain food. And I think that's another quality I enjoy about it. Is at its base, if you have a margarita pizza, the tricolore pizza, like it's there's not many ingredients. It's pretty simple. Yet each ingredient requires so much time to truthfully prepare. Like, no one thinks about how long it takes to make mozzarella because they usually don't make the mozzarella themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Same thing with the pizza with the pizza sauce. I mean, I try to make my own pizza sauce at home, and sometimes I think, you know, it should be a light, not very reduced sauce. And sometimes I think, no, it's got to be super pungent, like almost like a sun-dried tomato, you know, where it's like almost all the liquid is gone. It's just like a paste. And, th- you know, there's so many different ways to slice that problem. And then, of course, you start talking about dough and all the fermentation qualities. I mean, each one of those ingredients in of itself, there's like philosophical choices to be had there. Each one of those ingredients by itself stand alone, right? Right. Think about a crust, like a really good fermented crispy crust. You know, people wax poetic about baguettes and certain kinds of bread. People certainly eat cheese by itself. Oh, yeah. Oh, Anybody yeah. who with any kind of Italian ancestry or even somewhat, you know, some some peripheral knowledge of how Italians cook know that a marinara sauce is, you know, 
a highly contested um, and almost ritualized cooking experience. Oh, yeah. You know, it's an all-day boil. Um, but, you know, there's just so many conflicting opinions about when's the right time to do this and this and this and how you do, you do this. and Much less what um, ingredients should be used. Well, right, right. But they all stand alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to, it, like, the sense of... I mean... In the sense of like, there's a there's a particular sauce I like to make for like a like a fettuccine noodle at home. Super simple tomato sauce. Um, basically, you take San Marzano's from Italy. I'm particular on this point. I do think they do taste different, and then the quality is worth it. You cut an onion in half. You throw it in there. Like you peel the you know ugly parts off, but cut an onion in half. Yeah. Throw it in there. Throw in maybe a couple of tablespoons of butter. Cook it for 20 minutes. Pull the onion out. Maybe puree the tomatoes if you want that texture or just chop them up coarsely with your wooden spoon. I love that sauce. It's super, super simple, easy to pull out of your back pocket, and it's delicious. And that's the Marcella Hazan recipe, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's not my idea. Marcella Hazan, she's like my introduction to how to think of cooking Italian food. Um, Mm -hmm. But then you get into the... I mean, if you look at her recipe for... So you look at her recipe for bolognese, which is a meat sauce. She wrote in Italian, even though she was fluent in English, because Italian was her love language with food. And someone had to translate it in conjunction with her. Like, I love that mm-hmm. about her. <laughs> and yet, still in the English words that I'm reading, it takes on like this religious tone. I mean, there's so much reverence. And there is so much like, and don't do this. I mean, it's it's so fine. And everybody has such... She has such strong opinions. Mm-hmm. And it really, I mean, when I go through a recipe, it really, like, if I follow her steps, it all comes together. If I deviate, I end up realizing, oh, that's why you're supposed to do this step this way. And I love that ritual. Yeah. I love that about uh, preparing food. I think that's what everyone loves about pizza is everyone can enjoy it. And if you really care, then we can start dissecting what's fun about it. Like, what you know, how do you make your sauce? What cheese do you use? What temp do you set your oven to? You know, how long is your proof? Yeah. Like, all that stuff. It's kind of like barbecue. Yeah. I mean, is it like barbecue? I almost, I think it's more than barbecue, though. And, and why I say that is, is because pizza is one of those rare things in... I don't know in life. I don't know what you call this, <laughs> sure. but in in the in the realm of um, the the cultural eye, where there's nobody who dislikes pizza. Maybe there's one or two. Well, you can have celiac. You'd probably dislike pizza. Uh, but dislike for taste reasons. Dislike for you know. <laughs> okay, fair it's enough. It's gonna kill me. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah, but yeah. but it's one of those things that. Yeah, bar- barbecue. I I could see how you know I, a lot of Europeans dislike barbecue because it is, I mean, it's basically sugar. It's basically oh, yeah. meat slathered in sugar. That's I mean, and smoke, right? I, not that's that sounds very dismissive of barbecue. I'm a <laughs> yeah. huge barbecue fan. Um, yes, I, you I know. know, and I and I get it. But I was born American. It, it's, to somebody not born into the culture of sugar, like that is overwhelming. Yes, that's a very good point. Mm-hmm. Um, but pizza just seems to to reach across all cultural. I don't want to say all. I'm sure that's not true, but it it seems to hit everybody. I mean, every every place I've ever been outside the U.S. 
has had a pizza place. If nothing else, there's some form of pizza that's available. Yeah. And it might be a very interesting version of what us Americans would consider pizza, but it's there. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what is that what is that universality about something like pizza that's just so pervasive and so, you know, just it, you, you, you can't go anywhere. Human beings when they plant their flag on Mars, the first thing that's going to show up is a pizza place. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, McDonald's maybe. Anyways, yeah. that's a corporate conversation. I think well, I mean just look at the three ingredients of pizza. You have bread, which almost every culture in the world makes bread. Um, so you have the fermentation part of it too, which reorganizes wheat and it's, you know, in this flour and water form to make dough. And it reorganizes it and creates new compounds and adds this depth of dimension of flavor that's, I mean, who who doesn't like bread? You know, obviously we talked about the celiac population. That's a slightly different equation, right? And then you have tomatoes. Mm. Tomatoes are just delicious. I mean, they're just full of umami. They're sweet. They're sour. If you add a little salt, they really rich up. I mean, it's just wonderful. And then you add cheese, which is a delightfully salted, fermented foodstuff. Um, and when you cook them all together in this magical amalgamation that we call pizza, it's like, how do you deny that joy, the umami of pizza? So, okay. So th- that's that brings up a really interesting interesting point and i and i think this is this is the case for cheese and for bread but for for tomato sauce just you know like a quick story right i i remember um when i was oh boy still early high school late junior high i i was i wanted to cook marinara sauce i looked up the recipe online it was you know olive oil tomatoes onion garlic and a little bit of wine and so and salt and so i threw all of that into a pot and it was it was gross you know, oil is just floating on top. Like, why? Why is why is the oil separate from the tomatoes? I don't understand this. Th- those ingredients, if you've ever tried to just combine them, they don't they don't make sauce the way that you're used to. Um, and and even you know, I I learned to to make sauce from my my roommates in college and and their parents, um, and y- you know, even when you do it right, the first you know, maybe the first half an hour after you kind of like set it to simmer, it tastes like that, like, you know, separate raw ingredients. It tastes Mm -hmm. like tomatoes and olive oil and onions and garlic. It doesn't, you're like this, this doesn't, this isn't right. Mm -hmm. But after eight hours, 10 hours, oh man, it starts to come together and it just like it, it, all of a sudden it just becomes that unctuous umami, like you said, Mm. sauce. Um, and maybe that's the key to the, to I mean to the sauce, but also to the like the cheese, right? I mean, cheese is is milk, and rennet, but but I mean, essentially, it's just milk and cultures. Rennet is is basically just a like an enzymatic, um, it facilitates an enzymatic reaction, but it's it's really nothing more than allowing bacteria to ferment the milk and and probably not saying that exactly right. I mean, but um, you're essentially right. I mean, the bacteria transforms the various highly complex molecular, molecular structure of milk into something different. Yeah. Right. Yeah, okay. 
I mean, it's a, we're glossing over a lot here, but that's what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Anybody who like really understands how this works is like, shut this man up. Every cheesemonger um, is crying right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give or take. Um, but but then it then it you know like in in the mozzarella is is. Um, you know, soft age, but then you have Parmesan, which like, I think Parmesan is, is like a, uh, a really good case study of the umami that's present in something like mozzarella, but, but distilled down to a, a level that you can taste so easily. Like there's this, this, like, I don't know, this, this umami, um, type of, sort of like flavor bomb that that kind of goes off with anybody who's had you know like an actual slice of parmesan cheese knows exactly what that feeling is yeah. it's like this oh man this is just it's 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 a taste sensation or a flavor sensation that just doesn't really exist in a lot of things um sure but sure. actually <laughs> now that i'm thinking about it well right it does exist i was, yeah, I was about ahead. to bring this up because i mean so, yeah, both you and I were thinking the same thing. I, th I think so, yeah. Because, okay, A, umami is kind of a new word to a lot of people. And umami isn't a new concept. It's just been named recently. So umami mm. is essentially the fifth taste, as we know it. Uh, it was originally, as far as I can tell, actually, it was originally documented by a Japanese scientist in, like, 1908. So it's not yep. necessarily even a new idea. Um, but obviously, you know, a, a, a Japanese scientist in 1908, that information isn't going to get to the U.S. very quickly, right? Like, there's a right. lot of reasons for that. So, even the original, the original medium that he discovered it on was this, this um, basically a piece of seaweed called konbu. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I read this article like long, long ago, I thought I really wish I knew what that tasted like so I have some frame of reference but most people like what's kombu <laughs> mm, I have some in my pantry right now but well yeah right I mean, but most people a couple don't years on <laughs> right, right 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 yeah so if you ever had miso soup you have tasted kombu and you have definitely tasted the sense of umami and in the western tradition uh escoffier is probably the name we should bring up he was all about umami I mean if you make a veal stock you're basically just trying to cultivate a stock that holds umami. Now, I'm not going to say that umami is one particular chemical compound, but what Dave and I were laughing about earlier is we both want to bring up the elephant in the room, which is MSG, monosodium glutamate, which isn't umami, but is one of the best ways to find the... It's not an umami compound per se, but it's a really good example of a compound that generates the sense of umami. Yeah, And what's really funny, I didn't know this until I was doing some research uh, about this today, was um, <laughs> monosodium, monosodium glutamate. So the glutamate part, glutamic acid, right, is what that com individual component is. And then you pair it with the sodium ion, and then you have one sodium, so monosodium glutamate, right? Pretty simple mm -hmm. chemistry, nothing terribly complicated here. The word glutamate stuck out to me, though. I was like, why? Like, because that reminds me of bread, right? Going back to the celiac part, like, it reminds me of, like, that's gluten, right? Mm -hmm. The reason it's named glutamic acid is the, the first precursor used to isolate glutamic acid in a lab was done in 1866 by, I think, a German chemist or a Swiss chemist. I can never remember which one. One of the two. 
And basically, because his precursor, he used wheat to basically isolate this this particular molecule structure, he just called mm-hmm. it glutamate because it's from wheat's gluten. <laughs> but glut- glutamic acid has nothing to do with gluten per se. Wow. Right? So, like... And I, th- I did not know that. And I find that fascinating because how many people would look at glutamic acid and be like, no, 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 I do not want that. I don't, I don't want to consume that. That sounds really bad for me. Here's the catch. The average human has about four pounds of glutamic acid in their body at all times because it's incredibly useful to life. Like we need it yeah. to live. We would not live without glutamic acid, which is why it's in tomatoes naturally. It's why, it's in, I mean, it's in... Name a food product, It's there's probably some glutamic acid in, well, there's almost undoubtedly glutamic acid in there. There's almost undoubtedly monosodium glutamate in there as well. And that's, yeah. and but it has such a bad rap to it though. MSG, it's it's the devil, you know? Yeah, that's, that. my, my head went in the same place because I know I, I was, um, I, I was rereading one of, uh, this book that I actually, picked up in the Czech Republic, somebody gave it to me. Um, and I, you know, I obviously you and I both read, um, or have read quite a bit about food at, you know, over our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, there's book, there's a book, um, by Jeffrey Steingarten called, um, it must've been something I ate. And it's a, he's a, he's a food writer and he'd really, I mean, if you're not a, into food, he's very, very snobby, uh, very, very pretentious. I just, it's not mince words. He, yeah. you know, you, you will not like him if you don't really care a lot about food. Yeah. And even me, I'm like, Oh Jesus. Um, but <laughs> there's, there's a lot of really, really great points in his writing. And he has an article about MSG. Um, and I, I, I'm sure he wasn't the first, but he was one of the first, um, you know, within pop culture. Cause I think he's writing in like the, the early two thousands here. Um, and, and he wrote the first sort of in defense of MSG article, um, mm, yeah, because, yeah, yeah. and I think you can probably kind of speak to like why the demonization happened in the first place. Um, I can. Well, let's get there in a bit though. Tell your side first. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so he, he was writing about the, basically what MSG is and, and the opening segment to his essay, he is, he and his wife are in China in Nanjing and they are you know, go to obviously every restaurant around because he's a food critic and he writes about food. Um, and he's just, you know, just describing in detail all of the implements and ingredients in every single one of these, you know, in the kitchens of all of these restaurants in Nanjing. And in every single one of these restaurants, whether it's a noodle stall, whether it's a, um, you know, yakitori, it's Japanese, but, you know, it doesn't matter the, the, food stuff there is a there is a among the ingredients there's a bowl or a ramekin of what jeffrey steingartner calls gourmet powder i don't know if there's a you know if there's a, a a chinese word or a japanese word he doesn't state so in his in his essay um but what it is is msg pure powdered msg mm-hmm. and when he is walking back to his hotel one day he goes you know Apparently, MSG causes headaches, migraines. Mm-hmm. D- 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 name name the affliction. Apparently is a very good word here. 
<laughs> so if that's the case, I would assume everyone in China has a headache all day long. Because clearly this ingredient is used in almost all dishes in the cooking of this country, or at least in this province that he was in. So if that's the case, then everybody in China has a headache. Right. So then he like makes this whole thing about, you know, he goes to the hotel and he asks 30 people in the hotel if they have a headache and they say no. And he thus concludes statistically that <laughs> right, not I mean, everyone in China has a headache. Look, anyway. the population <laughs> size of 30 in China is going to count. I mean, yeah. right. Okay. So an informal study of a couple dozen people in China concluded that maybe there's something not wrong with MSG. <laughs> maybe something else is happening. Right. That's basically what he's saying. Yeah, 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 and and you know when you when you really start to, um, and this is you know putting on my Jeffrey Steingarten glasses and being a little bit pretentious about food, but when you start you know looking into like specifically Chinese and Japanese cuisine, mm, that yeah. umami flavor is such an important component to structuring a dish. Yes, and that's why MSG is in powdered form in every one of these kitchens. Because it imparts, you know, uh, I think it's really quick. I think it would be good to ground um, people in into the difference between flavor and taste. We we sometimes we often use those terms interchangeably, and I mean, like you and I do too. Sure. Um, yeah. But there is there is an actual kind of physiological difference, right? A flavor is a smell sense it's it's pure aroma it has nothing to do with taste you can you can perceive flavor as much through the nose as you can through your retronasal cavity which mm -hmm. is how you perceive flavor when you eat but it's still coming through your sense of smell right taste is a lot more is a lot less nuanced than flavor right there's only five elements of taste maybe and six though by the way carbon dioxide's coming on the scene pretty hot but yes Ooh. yeah and we don't need to get into it but i think there's a pretty legitimate case for carbon dioxide being the sixth taste but anyways i haven't heard i haven't heard this at all i digress um well, <laughs> well let's go with let's go with uh let's go with for five the, yeah the sake of argument exactly because i can't speak to the sixth yeah um but if you think about your tongue right like when you plug your nose and you put food on your tongue, your tongue, even like if you plug your nose, you're not, you're not sensing any of the flavor, right? Like you don't get thyme versus rosemary necessarily. <laughs> right. You get the taste sensation, which is salty, sweet, bitter. Sour. That's the fourth one. Sour. Acid. Yep. <laughs> Sour. <laughs> Sour. Um, and... Umami. And this much more difficult to sort of comprehend or or, or um, explain umami. And, it, you know, for a long time, Western science thought there were only four tastes and then umami sort of came on the scene through Japan because, the, you know, the culture's cuisine just placed much more emphasis on this feeling of, like, richness or fullness. Mm -hmm. um, but it is one of the five tastes. And... Why wouldn't you, you know, if you're if you're a cuisine, why wouldn't you try and do everything you can to to? I don't know where I was going. With that no, no, part. I totally understand. It, so it, 
maybe the way to look at it is if you're a cook, you're going to use every tool in your toolbox to delight your customer. So if someone comes along and says, hey, here's some straight up MSG, maybe mixed with some salt, maybe mixed with some other flavorings to dilute it a bit, make it easier to work with. But here's some MSG that will help you just set your baseline foundation of what your umami is going to be for this dish. What cook is going to be like, no, I'm going to reduce this veal stock for 12 hours. Maybe a French chef would do this. I don't know. But like, I'm going to do it this old fashioned way. Like how many people would be like, no, sure. I'll just, I'll just take that uh, MSG, take that accent yeah. or Moggy or whatever brand you want to choose and utilize it. Especially cause, so I did a little research into like, okay, this is a compound that's being chemically synthesized um, in a lab. There's some negative side effects to it. Um, but my question was, is the synthesized version of MSG different than the naturally occurring version? Right, so if you just bite into a tomato, there is MSG in that tomato. Same thing with an oyster. You have an oyster. There's some there. You have some kombu. Probably shouldn't eat just kombu. That's, that'd be a little weird. You could, but be a little <laughs> weird. MSG is naturally there. So I was wondering, like, okay, is there something different between the natural and the synthetic form? And as far as I've been able to tell, there is no, there's no difference. I mean, they're created totally different ways. One grows from the earth in a fashion the other one's synthesized in a lab but as far as the human's bot the human body's metabolism is concerned as far as we can tell so far there's no there's no difference like our body doesn't process it differently so it's not a it's not that we're adding it to things that is necessarily the problem scientifically so it's like what is the problem with msg right because we all i guarantee you 50% of the people listening right now are just like, I don't know, though. I don't know about MSG. I still don't trust it, right? Yeah. Yep. And it's really, really, I find it cosmically funny, which is to say incredibly tragic. Why MSG is belittled in our country. Well, okay. So so you know, I know you know more about this than I do. Why why did MSG so so we're talking about like like the aftermath of this war, but I don't think a lot of people know what this war was about. So why was MSG demonized to begin with? I mean, like it, it's it's just a flavoring. It's yep. synthetically produced flavoring, but it's still flavoring. Like citric acid is a synthetically produced flavoring. And right. <laughs> it's it's used in literally anything that you create or anything you buy on a shelf that you know is preserved in some way. Right. People are willing to have a margarita from pre-made limeade mix that is shelf stable. But MSG, no, not about it. You're right. It's a it's a it's a funny so, misunderstanding. Um, yeah. So, so what, how did we get? How do, like where do we? How do we find ourselves in our culture thinking like MSG is evil and it's and it's killing us? Well, unfortunately. Um, so first off, I got a, almost all of this from a much better podcast than RDQI, which is called This hey, This hey. American Life. It's kind of hard to go against This American Life, Dave. I mean, Ira Glass yeah, but, is kind of like he's like the godfather RDQI? of podcasting, though. Yeah, but have you heard RDQI? <laughs> oh, I, I listen to it every week, Dave. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, so they did some digging because there's there's actually multiple conflicting stories. And it's way too long to even get into on this one podcast. But basically, here's what happened. Here, Let me recount the story as I understand it. Because I don't... 
you know, I don't actually know. But here's what I've researched and found out from multiple different sources. In 1968, there was a Chinese-American scientist. And by scientist, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, he is a pediatrician. So a medically trained doctor, right? Which is also a scientist. Mm -hmm. They're similar fields, entirely connected to each other. And again, 1968, Dr. Robert Homan Kwok, K-W-O-K. It was a researcher at the, um, hold on one second, National Biological Resource Foundation in Springfield, Maryland, if you want to know. He basically wrote a letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, where he said, like, his experience of eating in Chinese-American restaurants was that because the Chinese-American cooks weren't as sophisticated and knowledgeable of Chinese cuisine as, say, you know, like a Chinese chef would be, that they relied on MSG to account for, you know, their inequity, basically. And he said that he would have numbness, you know, general weakness. He'd have heart, uh, heart palpitations after these meals. So let's take a step back and think about what I just said. A pediatrician who is a doctor and highly educated individual who is not a trained chemist, does not know how to <laughs> synthesize MSG probably, writes basically an op-ed opinion letter to a journal complaining about one person having mild heart palpitations after eating northern Chinese American food. That is the genesis of MSG being the devil in the United States. Because then this is taken with and run with. And I think this, unfortunately, we're not going to jump too much in this side of the conversation, Dave. Although I think it's incredibly poignant considering that um, in April 2021, there's a, we are very highly aware of how Asian Americans are treated in this country. Yeah. Basically, there's this one op-ed written by a pediatrician who's not a chemist, who does not, I mean, I'm sure he has a decent understanding, or had, had, he has passed on since. This one op-ed article is written, and people just run with it, to the point where there was a doctor, in a, in another American white doctor in this case, who later wrote in saying like, yeah, actually, I was moonlighting as this Dr. Kwok. Dr. Kwok doesn't actually exist. And I'm just, you know, just kind of, I was making a bet with some orthopedic surgeons, if I'm not mistaken, that it it get really easy to write, get an article like this published. And that was the story. So if you go on the internet right now and, and look up Dr. Kwok MSG, you're more than likely going to find a bunch of stories saying that this Dr. Steele with the knee at the end made it all up. He wrote it as a joke. And has just been laughing his whole, the rest of his life. So it's this weird, interesting, like, mixture wow. of just lies on top of lies on top of lies based on a half-truth. And yet all the medical literature so far says, like, there's no reason to be afraid of MSG. I mean, yes, if you consume, they found in a lab setting that if you consume over three grams, and mind you, in this study, what this means is you show up to the lab on an empty stomach they literally give you a spoon with three grams of MSG on it. You consume that MSG and they observe the side effects. If you do that, yes, there will be some side effects. Yeah. Well, if you consume three grams of salt in one sitting, on exactly. Two, you're going <laughs> to. Exactly. And I think this kind of brings us to, I mean, in my opinion, the real point of what I want to talk about, which is science literacy is a very incredibly pressing issue 
Because all of this is based on a misunderstanding of the basic principles of chemistry. Basically. Ah... And this and this is not this is not an isolated incident by any stretch. No, this I mean, happens a million times talked, over. Yeah, yeah, we've talked a number of times on this podcast about you know nutrition and diet and all this stuff. And <laughs> right, you know, like have you ever you know anytime you go look for okay, I want to do this. How should I eat? Like there's so many, there's so much conflicting anything like the you know just mm-hmm. facts conflict facts conflict facts and we've also had you know a number of already debunked things throughout you know the the 30 plus uh, years that i've been alive mm-hmm. um you know think about think about fat um you know fat was was evil um yeah and then we replaced it with high fructose any. corn syrup instead of like well we can make it low fat let's just make it higher in sugar Right or or you know hydro hydrologized fats which mm-hmm. te- you know now are are trans fats which you know we can take something that was ten grams of regular fat and bring it down to one gram of trans fat but trans fat is is terrible for you but is it terrible for you mm-hmm. um, I and and I think you're you're really zeroing in on the problem is I, I well I think the problem is twofold right there's there's the problem of taking very complex science or scientific studies mm-hmm. and trying to distill it down into a sound bite or an mm. article that anybody can read mm-hmm. digestible to the layman if you will and you know the, the the second point is we're looking for black and white answers about how biology works that's a good <laughs> and, way to do it yeah and unfortunately, a journalistic article is never going to allow the space to provide all of the, you know, potential um, implications or conclusions of a scientific study. Right. Especially right, if because, you have to tweet about it and you're limited to what, 240 characters? Yeah. To steal someone's attention so, when Kanye and Kim are breaking up. I mean, like fighting over the noise is really difficult to do. As a scientist, at least, you know, is a high will a high fat diet be bad for you if you sit on the couch all day and you consume that fat in the form of you know processed foods? Yes. Is fat bad for you if you have a sedentary diet but eat like uh, you know fruits and vegetables, but also a lot of fat? Maybe. Is fat great for you if you eat a ketogenic, intermittent fasting kind of diet? Yes. As far as we but, know so far. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there's also whole cultures like the Inuit culture that exist primarily on fat. <laughs> right. Yep. Mm-hmm. The, the point is, is that fat is neither good nor bad. Fat is one of millions, probably billions of variables that go into the health of an individual. Mm-hmm. So to say fat is thumbs up or thumbs down is just so myopic in scope, but it does sell. That's really the books. O- well, but that's the, right. That's the only. That's the only data that you can get across in a in a very simple, easily digestible article that you can put in, you know, Time Magazine. Ding 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 ding. <laughs> but I think that's. The- so I think that's what you're getting at with like, yeah. Go ahead. 
I think one of the problems we're running up to here is science is a really tricky thing to talk about. I mean, you and I were educated in a pretty, we were educated in a very good education system. We were given a lot of opportunities that many Americans have not been afforded. I think we can both acknowledge that and we're not, we're only saying this out loud to make sure everyone else knows that we acknowledge this fact in particular. Um, Because it needs to be said. So you and I have both been educated in the scientific method. We've been exposed to multiple people, high level thinkers who are able to criticize the scientific method or at least be able to criticize other people's application of the scientific method. And in doing so, being able to criticize someone carrying out science is incredibly important because otherwise someone could run bad studies and make bad conclusions from corrupt data and say, yeah, MSG is bad for you. You should never add it to your food, which is a total fallacy in the sense that MSG is evident in all of your food and you need it to survive. So if bad research and bad reporting can contribute in this negative feedback loop, how do we as a society break out of that to actually use science to help us rather than hurt us? Thank you.